Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Well, the man to my left is a Catholic historian specializing in classical and medieval periods. He received his doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University and in recent years has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. But more importantly, he's a great friend of mine and also a friend of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please welcome back Mr. and soon-to-be Dr. Brendan McGuire. Thanks, guys. So how are you guys doing? Good, excellent. I'm actually still in the process of recovering emotionally from Monday Night Football last night. Um, it, it was really, I mean, it was rough. Ryan Dowdy knows what I'm talking about. The, my beloved New York Jets uh, just played like garbage last night. So it's, it, it's, it's really, really hard. So, uh, I know, I know. Yeah, welcome to it. But if anyone here is a Baltimore fan, uh, you have my hearty congratulations. Uh, you beat us 10 to 9, so great job. So we're doing a three-part series then on the medieval papacy, right? Now, one thing that we have to clarify right at the beginning, and this especially applies whenever you're talking to a Catholic audience, this is something that has to be clarified right at the beginning. Everyone uh, who's a, a practicing Catholic or a devout Catholic knows that the papacy was founded by Christ, right? That's part of Catholic dogma. That's part of papal teaching that the papacy was founded by Christ. Nevertheless, right, all the specifics of how the papacy functioned vary dramatically throughout history. Right? The way the papacy functions today is dictated partly by the divinely invested responsibilities of Pope Benedict XVI, but also in large part by the historical circumstances in which Benedict XVI finds himself. And that was true all throughout Christian history. Right? The way the papacy functioned, the roles that the papacy undertook, the power and authority that the papacy exercised, right? these things varied wildly throughout the history of, of Christianity. And so what we're going to talk about in this three-part series is what might be regarded in some sense as the apogee, as the zenith of papal authority and power. Right? And that is the Middle Ages. Right? So, the, so the papacy in the, in the Middle Ages took on a variety of roles right? that modern Catholics don't necessarily associate the papacy with. People are usually a little bit surprised when they, when they come to be acquainted with the variety of roles and responsibilities that the papacy was invested with in the Middle Ages. Think about it. I mean, the papacy exercised a role at the height of its powers right, that involved directive, authoritative, um, let's put it this way, directive, authoritative exercise of power right, that was formative in terms of the politics of Europe. Right? The papacy, was, as an institution in the Middle Ages, was not something that simply responded to or tried to placate or react to the politics of the time. The papacy was the authoritative director of the politics of the time. Right? And so what we're going to see is how that situation developed, what the papacy was able to accomplish once that situation developed, right? and then, of course, we're going to see how it fell apart. Right? So the, the basic way we're going to divide these three lectures over the next three Tuesdays uh, is today we're going to talk about the formation of the, of the medieval papacy, how the foundations were laid 
for the medieval papacy to exercise the various roles that it did in the politics of Western Europe and in the social uh, and uh, administrative side of things. Right? The, the papacy, you have to remember, was the one institution that survived the collapse of the Roman West. Right? It was the one institution that provided continuity from the Roman West into the medieval period. Right? And so we're going to see how the papacy rose to assume that role. Then in, in our second lecture, we'll talk about the papacy functioning kind of at the height of its powers. We'll talk about the age of the Gregorian reform, the investiture controversy, the Crusades, the Lateran councils, all of these things. Right? And then in our third lecture, we'll be able to talk about the decline of the medieval papacy and how historical change, irreversible historical change, basically forced the papacy to adjust. Okay, so let's talk about how the medieval papacy emerged. To talk about the emergence of the medieval papacy, we basically have to talk about the way in which Western Europe emerged from late antiquity. Right? The concept of late antiquity is something that we have to get down first. Late antiquity, generally speaking, uh, it, it's a term that's bandied about a lot in historical scholarship, and oftentimes it's used imprecisely. Right? A, a term like late antiquity is one of these things that is sometimes used to designate a wide swath of time from the 2nd century to the 8th century uh, to embrace the barbarian and Islamic and Byzantine worlds and the, and the Western Roman world. The term late antiquity is, is sometimes defined very vaguely. Right? Uh, I prefer a more specific definition. Right. Some scholars, A.H.M. Jones in the English-speaking world or Alexander Daymont in the German-speaking world, they define late antiquity basically as the time from Diocletian down to the fall of the Roman Empire. And so what, what that is going to mean is that as the Roman Empire gradually collapses, right, as Roman imperial institutions gradually fall into abeyance, late antiquity is going to fade away in different places and at different times. Right? The world of late antiquity is the world of Christian Rome. Right? It's the world of Constantine. It's the world of Theodosius. Right? And in that world, the papacy's position was sometimes rather ambiguous. Right? The Roman emperors had a very definite vision of themselves. Christian Roman emperors had a very definite vision of themselves as divinely anointed heads of Christian civilization. Right. Oftentimes it's easy to forget that. Anyone who wants a good whiff of that should read uh, Eusebius of Caesarea's history, right? or Eusebius of Caesarea's Life of Constantine. You get a sense there, a very robust sense, of the way in which the Christian emperor was viewed as the head of all Christendom. The icon of God on earth. Right? An alter Christus par excellence. That's how Constantine viewed himself. That's why Constantine presided over the Council of Nicaea, wearing gold robes of some kind, like he was Michael Jackson or something. Uh, but, uh, you know, Constantine very, very clearly saw himself as this icon of Christ. Right? Now that um, vision of the emperor as the head of the Christian world is something that was inherited by the Christian emperors of the East after the Roman West fell. Right? And that's something that we're going to have to understand. Um, in terms of giving a general background of the, the fall of Rome in the West, everybody knows Roman control in the West fades gradually um, throughout the, the 4th and 5th centuries. Right? By the end of the 5th century, it's pretty clear that the Roman Empire no longer really has control of anything in what we call the West. And when we say the West, we're thinking of Italy, we're thinking of Dalmatia, we're thinking of North Africa, we're thinking of Spain and Gaul and Britain. Right? These were areas that had been completely Romanized. Right? They had been completely within the orbit of Roman culture and Roman civilization. 
Right? And by the end of the 5th century, the Roman Empire no longer exercises any kind of control there. Right? Into that vacuum is going to step the papacy. Right? The papacy as an institution right, is able to define itself in response to the decline of Roman authority in the West, right? but not before having to face down very, very serious challenges. And this is what we have to understand. The Roman emperors in the East, what we call, we have a name for them, you guys know, right? They're called Byzantine emperors, right? It's a very confusing name, the term Byzantine emperors, because they never called themselves Byzantine emperors, ever. Nobody called them Byzantine emperors prior to the modern age. They were Roman emperors, and that's how they thought of themselves, right? They never relinquished their claims to 100% to primacy over the Christian world, East and West, Right? And so what's going to happen is for the papacy to really emerge as an institution that can guide, that can direct, that can authoritatively govern the Christian world, it's going to have to fend off a challenge from these Eastern emperors. That battle begins to be fought really in the 6th century. You guys know the great Eastern Roman emperor of the 6th century, kind of the towering figure of the 6th century, is Justinian. Right. This is a figure who would be somewhat familiar to you from past lectures or something like that. Justinian had a robust vision of restoring the Roman world of late antiquity to its former glory. Right. Justinian ruled over a, a wealthy, powerful empire that was basically the eastern half of what had once been Rome. He ruled over Greece and the Balkans. He ruled over Asia Minor. He ruled over Armenia, Syria, Palestine, parts of Mesopotamia. He ruled over Egypt. Right. Justinian had a, a very wealthy and powerful empire. Realizing the potentialities and the resources that he had at his disposal, Justinian set out to reconquer the West. Right. And over the course of the last 30 years of Justinian's life, his armies marched up and down Italy, desperately trying to reassert Roman control over the Italian peninsula. And in the process, they have to come to grips with the papacy. Right. Now, Look at it this way. There's absolutely no compatibility between the, the, the way the papacy had come to view the hierarchy of the Christian world and the way the, the Eastern emperors tended to view the hierarchy of the Christian world. Right? The way the papacy had come to function, right, they came to see themselves as the ones who should rightly govern and direct the Christian world. Right? These claims to authority... Right, which were founded on scriptural texts, founded on sacred tradition, founded on also the historic situation in which the popes were required to step up and direct. Right? These claims were absolutely incompatible with the traditional Eastern imperial practice of what one might call Caesaropapism. Right? Now, when I use a term like Caesaropapism, right, you have to realize this is controversial. Caesaropapism is a controversial term. Why? Um, well... Byzantine historians rightfully point out, they rightfully point out that the Byzantine church was often very effective at resisting imperial control. Right? In regard to many issues, the, the Byzantine emperors tried to make the weight of their authority felt. They tried to function as a sort of a lay pope in many ways within the Byzantine church. Uh, but the, the monastic clergy and the patriarchs were oftentimes very successful at resisting the emperors and pushing their own agenda. Right? Nevertheless, right, with that caveat, right, we have to realize Byzantine emperors viewed themselves in terms that can fairly be described by us, I think, as Caesaropapist. Right. So, Caesaropapism. Right. 
The Byzantine emperor, seeing himself as the icon of God, seeing himself as God's representative on earth, saw it as his task to enforce Christian orthodoxy, settle doctrinal disputes, punish heretics, hold ecumenical councils, and hold his bishops to account, including the Bishop of Rome, and maybe especially the Bishop of Rome. Right? Whereas the popes viewed themselves as the successors of Peter, the primates of the church, they viewed Rome as what they called the caput omnium ecclesiarum, the kephale pason tones ecclesion, the head of all the churches. Right? These two views are utterly incompatible. You see that in the time of Justinian. As Justinian is seeking to restore the Roman Empire of late antiquity, right? there's a major theological controversy that's sort of racking the Christian world at the time. What is that? Do you guys know what that is? Neither Arianism nor the Filioque are correct answers. Huh? Not iconoclasm yet. That's the 8th century. Take another shot. Not Gnosticism, no. Any other shot? Marian Minor, take a shot. I'm just kidding. Uh, Monophysitism? Does that ring a bell? Monophysitism, okay. You have to understand Monophysitism. All right. Monophysitism is a, it's a theological controversy that developed in the late antique world during the time when the church was holding ecumenical councils to try to hammer out exactly how to describe Christ's relationship with the Father. Right? We have to remember, we have the benefit of you know, centuries of ecumenical councils that were held, uh, which hammered out exactly the technical language that should be used when talking about Christ and his relationship to God the Father. Christians in late antiquity didn't have that benefit, and so, and so very intense disputes would emerge about how to talk about Christ. Right? Arianism was the first of those big disputes, which sort of dominated the 4th century in the Christian world. It was settled on the side of saying that Christ is definitely of the same substance as the Father. Christ is God. Right? The controversy of Monophysitism, it's, it's a little bit different, because Monophysites, if anything, stress the, div- the divinity of Christ too much, if that's possible. How can you stress the divinity of Christ too much? If you stress it to the exclusion of his humanity. And this is what the Monophysites tended to do. Right? There's, there's really two poles of Christological controversy in the 5th century, and, and these controversies extend into the 6th century. Monophysites are on one side. The, on the other side, you have a group called the Nestorians. Is that a familiar term? No. Nestorians. The Nestorians, if anything stressed the humanity of Christ too much. So for the Nestorians, they would even perhaps go so far as to say that Christ is two persons. There's a, a human Christ and there's a God Christ, right? a divine Christ. And these are, are separate in a way that compromises the unity of Christ's person. Right? Whereas the Monophysites are on the other side. They go so far in their emphasis on Christ's divinity that they say Christ has only one nature and not two. Right? And this is why we, we have the ben- when I, this is what I mean when I say we have the benefit of ecumenical councils and we have the benefit of hundreds of years of theological development. Because we all learned when we were eight years old that Christ is one person with two natures, right? But it took a lot to hammer out this technical language. The controversy over Monophysitism was raging during the reign of Justinian. Right? And just to give us a chronological, something to hang our hats on chronologically, Justinian's reign as Byzantine emperor was 527 to 565. Okay. So he began trying to assert Roman imperial control of Italy in the 530s, right? After having already conquered North Africa, kind of reincorporated North Africa into what was left of the Roman Empire. Italy was his next big target. And as he did so, 
Justinian found that his relationship with the papacy was compromised by his vision of himself as the emperor, as the icon of God, as the head of the church, as the guy who should be settling this dispute over monophysitism. Right? So, look at it this way. Uh, in order to placate the Monophysites, right, and perhaps bring them back into union with the church, Justinian had felt that it was a wise and prudent thing to condemn the writings of some of the Monophysites' enemies that might have been too extreme. Right? That, that's the best way to, to simplify it. Justinian felt that condemning the writings of certain men who had been extreme anti-Monophysites would be a great way to placate the Monophysites and bring them back into the fold. Okay. So Justinian did that. It's called the condemnation of the three chapters. Right? Uh, the three chapters were three sets of writings by these men who were anti-Monophysite thinkers. Now, the condemnation of the three chapters was very controversial in the Western Church because these, these anti-Monophysites were seen as being wholly orthodox in the West. Some of them had even been associated with the great council at, at Chalcedon in 451, right? And so the condemnation of the three chapters is, is something very, very difficult for the West to swallow and for the papacy. Justinian went so far as to imprison a pope in his efforts to get the Western Church to agree to this condemnation of the three chapters. The poor pope's name was Vigilius. And in 553, he was kidnapped, brought to Constantinople. Uh, he was held in solitary confinement. He was deprived of all counselors and all friends by Justinian until he signed on to this condemnation of the three chapters. Right? Only when he did so was he allowed to return to Rome, but he never even made it back. Right? The, the hardships that he had experienced in prison were too much for poor Pope Vigilius, and he had died. Right? So the beginning of our, the story of the medieval papacy... Right? It, we sort of begin with this late antique nadir of papal authority, where the, the papal prestige is very much at a low point here. You, you have popes being bullied, being beaten around, being imprisoned, being told what to do on theological matters by these ambitious Byzantine emperors. Right? Something that worked in the favor of the papacy. As the papacy sought to assert its independence from the Byzantine emperors was the fact that Justinian's reconquest of the Italian peninsula had left a resentful population behind. Justinian's reconquest of the Italian peninsula was, was a brutal and very difficult war that lasted for decades. And the Byzantine troops who were reconquering Italy, although they were seen by Justinian as Romans, as instruments of Roman policy, they were seen by the local population as marauders, as invaders, right? Whereas the papacy was seen as a stable, protecting institution that was local, that they were comfortable with. So as a result, what happens is the, the Byzantine reconquest of Italy, if anything, right, leads to an increase in the credibility of the papacy in the eyes of the Italian population as a whole. Right? Another event that would strike and, and would, would actually in some sense work in favor of the papacy was the arrival of a new group of barbarians in Italy called the Lombards. The Lombards arrive in Italy in 568. Now, it, it would take the Lombards quite a long time to sort of root out a Byzantine presence. Right? The, the Lombards, they sweep down, they establish duchies in much of northern Italy after 568, but they're battling with the Byzantines. There's still a Byzantine presence in Italy, but the Byzantine Empire is very, very weak. They have very, a very low ability to project their power here after the death of Justinian. Right? So what happens is, as the Lombards enter Italy, 
right? And it becomes incumbent upon someone to deal with the Lombards. It basically falls into the lap of the papacy, right? The papacy becomes a virtually independent viceroy of the Byzantine emperor after the advent of the Lombards. The papacy is forced to make decisions on the fly in making treaties with Lombard governors, in deciding whether to recognize a Lombard presence and a Lombard administration in parts of Italy, in deciding the, the terms under which a Roman population could live under Lombard rule, etc. Right? Uh, one of the other things that leads to a lot of contact between the papacy and the Lombards is the fact that there, uh, there were these um, estates throughout northern Italy, throughout much of the Italian peninsula, including areas that were occupied by the Lombards, there were estates that belonged to the papacy, and they were called papal patrimonies. Now, what's a patrimony? Patrimony, it means an inheritance or something, right? For the papacy, these patrimonies were very, very significant, very important estates that were located all across the Italian peninsula, and even outside the Italian peninsula in Sardinia, in Corsica, Dalmatia, and North Africa. Right? Now, what, what was the purpose of these patrimonies? Basically, they were revenue-producing estates that had been donated to the papacy at different times and for different reasons by a bunch of different people. Right? The papacy had been given not only the revenues of these different estates, but, and perhaps this is more important, the administrative responsibility for dealing with these various estates. Now, the revenue from the estates is, of course, very important because it allowed the papacy to do a wide variety of things. It allowed the papacy to care for the indigent population, to care for the poor. Uh, it allowed the papacy to ransom captives who had been taken by the Lombards. It allowed the papacy to do a, a wide variety of things. Right? But the, the presence of these patrimonies in Lombard territory means that there's a high level of contact between the papacy as an institution and these various Lombard duchies. Right? And so the papacy, w with very little interference from a weak Byzantine empire, is able to, you know, become kind of an independent negotiator with the Lombards. This leads to Byzantine interference in other ways. Think about it this way. You're a Byzantine emperor, right? You have very little ability to project power in a military or political sense into Italy. But you know that the pope is functioning as a de facto kind of independent viceroy in Italy, dealing with the Lombards. It's, you're going to become a lot more interested in who the Pope is, aren't you? The election of the Pope is going to become a point on which the Byzantine emperors are going to have an opinion, at least. Let's put it that way. Now, it's funny. Uh, the, the election of the Pope is one of these things. Some Catholics think that the College of Cardinals is also of divine institution, like the Pope. It's, it's not. The College of Cardinals is something that is very important, and we're going to see when the College of Cardinals is created. Uh, the effect that it has much later on. Right? But originally, when there was no College of Cardinals, papal elections were carried out in the same way that elections to bishoprics were always carried out. Right? Every bishopric had elections. Right? The bishopric of Rome was no exception. What would happen would be um, significant members of the clergy and of the laity, of the diocese and the surrounding region, including bishops of the surrounding dioceses. In the case of Rome, it was the Bishop of Ostia, the Bishop of Albano, and the Bishop of Porto uh, would get together with representatives of the Roman clergy and the laity, right? and they would have a sort of an election right? to, to choose a Bishop of Rome. Right? This was what tended to happen everywhere in late antiquity. Right? That starts to change. Once the papacy begins to function as a sort of a viceroy 
of the Byzantines. Once the papacy becomes responsible for administrative and political issues in dealing with the Lombards, the Byzantine emperors basically assert um, a kind of right of veto over papal elections. They begin to be very, very heavily involved in papal elections. Uh, it's only actually in the 680s that the Byzantine emperors will allow one of their representatives to confirm a papal election. Prior to that, emperors insisted on personally, personally confirming papal elections. Right, so it's, it, it's very, very interesting how once the pope begins to function independently, and once the Byzantines no longer have the ability to run an apparatus, an administrative apparatus there themselves, um, interference in elections becomes their primary means of, of messing around with the papacy. Right? The true father of the medieval papacy, the man who really laid the groundwork for an independent papacy that could take directive, authoritative action within Western Europe, was, of course, the famous figure of Gregory the Great. Right. Now, Gregory the Great is a familiar figure to you here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. I understand you've read some of his dialogues, you've read some of his writings, so he's, he's a familiar figure to you. His pontificate, 590 to 604, comes at a, a very critical phase in the development of early medieval Italy. 590 to 604 is a pivotal time in the Mediterranean world. This is a time when the Byzantine Empire is entering a state of chaos, the Byzantine Empire is just entering a, a state of war with the Persians that's going to last for a very long time. It's going to last down to, until 630. Right? Uh, so, so the Byzantine Empire's ability to project power and influence and, and even the, their interest in the West is going to be on the decline here during Gregory's pontificate. Right? Gregory's an interesting guy. He's a very, very interesting guy. His background was thoroughly Roman. His education, his outlook were Roman. His ideals were Roman, right? But he was also a pragmatist. Gregory the Great was a distinct pragmatist who knew that the world was in a state of flux. He knew that the world was changing, right? He perceived the dynamics of the world at the time, and as a result, he made decisions and judgments that would have profound implications throughout the medieval period. Gregory the Great's decisions would echo throughout the Middle Ages. Um, Look at it this way. Gregory had been an ambassador to the Byzantine Empire. Did you know that? He, he had actually spent a lot of time in Constantinople as an ambassador on behalf of previous popes. Right? So he knew how deeply entrenched uh, the imperial ecclesiastical ideology was in Byzantine circles. He knew how deeply entrenched the Byzantine imperial ideal was. He knew that talking to Byzantine emperors about Petrine primacy wasn't going to get him anywhere. It would be futile and it would be dangerous, right? To try to assert the kind of Petrine primacy that Gregory the Great had in mind, right? He had to turn his attention elsewhere, right? It would be dangerous and futile indeed to protest against something deeply ingrained, right? What Walter Ullmann calls a historically conditioned imperial scheme of government with the emperor at the top and all bishops, including the pope, underneath. Gregory wasn't going to protest against that. Instead, his strategy was to maintain peace, peace with the East, while turning his attention to the West. Right. Now, it's interesting. The, the state of the papal institutional apparatus is very interesting uh, in 590 when Gregory takes over. The popes, by 590, had developed a very, very efficient administrative apparatus. Uh, that dealt with a variety of things. They had a chancery, uh, they had secretaries, they had all kinds of bureaucrats who dealt with a wide variety of issues. 
Uh, they administered the patrimonies all over the Western Mediterranean. Right? So Gregory realized he had a lot of resources at his disposal. And his grand strategy, if you will, Gregory's grand strategy, was to raise the profile of the papacy in the Western world. Right? He realized negotiating with the Byzantine emperors about this would be futile. Right? So what, what he would try to do is maintain papal independence. Right? Maintain papal independence by being peaceful and respectful towards whoever was on the throne in Constantinople, while expanding papal influence in Italy and in the West. Right? And we have a lot of evidence for how he carried out this strategy. Gregory the Great is the first pope for whom we have uh, what we call papal registers. Uh, registers are complete records of correspondence. Now, in the case of Gregory the Great, we have later copies, but that's fine. We, we have later copies that are accurate and reliable. Uh, so we really have complete records of all his correspondence to the East and to the West. And there's a lot of it, and that's pretty cool. But Gregory also had a, a whole genre of other writings with which people are more familiar. Gregory wrote pop theology, if you will. Uh, and when I say pop theology, what, what I mean by pop theology is uh, his Latin sometimes, although he certainly could write very elegant Latin, he could certainly write a classicizing Latin that was the equal of anyone in his time, uh, he also could write a vulgar Latin uh, when he was trying to teach an uninstructed population about theological issues. Uh, and so what he really did was he popularized Augustinian thought the influence of Augustinian thought in the Western world, in the Middle Ages, is in large part due to Gregory. Right? Be that as it may, he, he was also a very shrewd man when it came to political, social, administrative issues. Right? He realized the importance of the patrimonies. The papal patrimonies in Gregory's time provided food for the poor population of Rome and the surrounding areas, etc., right? and so you have the papacy involved in social affairs very much, in administering social affairs. The patrimonies provided money to ransom captives from the Lombards. They provided money to support refugees who fled from the Lombard conquests. They pro papal patrimonies provided money for the papacy to, um, to house and feed flood victims in Rome at a time when floods were very frequent. And there were even times when the garrison of the Byzantine Empire in Rome was paid out of papal coffers. Right? Because the Byzantine emperors didn't like sending money on ships in big trunks. Uh, and so, but Byzantine troops were always very funny. This, I just have to say this as a side note. Um, Byzantine troops in late antiquity uh, and in the early Middle Ages were funny because you could not pay them for two years or three years or four years, and they would never revolt as long as you told them they were eventually going to get paid. Right? As long as you told them they were eventually, they wouldn't revolt. But if you told them that you were lowering their pay, they would rebel. <laughs> So you could pay them nothing, and that, that was fine, as long as you said, oh, man, no, you guys are due for a big payment you know, next year. Oh, yeah, it's coming. You know? <laughs> but, but if you said, okay, now we don't have the money, so we're going to lower your pay to this, they would flip out. Right? And that's what ended up happening in the year 602, with, with major implications for the Byzantines' ability to assert their authority in the West. Um, the year 602 was the end of the reign of uh, the, the great emperor Maurice, who j just kind of never learned his lesson. He... He tried four times to lower the pay of the Byzantine army. And, uh, you know, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing multiple times and expecting different results. <laughs> In the case of Maurice, uh, he was kind of insane. So, uh, yeah, he was... So the last time it resulted in a, in a revolt that overthrew him and killed him. Uh, and so that was the end of Maurice, right? But it resulted in tremendous chaos in the Byzantine world, right? The, the presence of a usurper on the throne... 
uh, was not only problematic internally for the Byzantines, it was problematic in terms of external affairs because Maurice had been a very close friend of the Persian emperor, Khosrau II. And so when Maurice was overthrown, guess who's not happy? Khosrau II. And he invades the Byzantine Empire and it leads to three decades of war. Right? And that was also, just as another side note, for historic reasons, that, that was also highly problematic for both Byzantine and Persian empires because uh, who comes around after 630? Muhammad, the Muslims, uh, under the rightly guided caliphs, al-Hulafa al-Rashidun, begin invading the Byzantine and Persian empires in 632. But be that as it may, be that as it may, there were times when the, the Byzantine garrison in Rome was actually being funded by Gregory the Great. Right, so it's interesting. So administratively, socially, politically, who's in charge in Rome? then, under Gregory the Great? Is there a Byzantine viceroy, a Byzantine governor, a Byzantine emperor, a Byzantine official, any kind of Roman imperial official there at all? No, it's the Pope, right? It's the papacy, right? So Gregory the Great is laying the foundations for what the, the medieval papacy would become, right? An institution that could act independently and authoritatively in the interests of the welfare of the Christian West, right? Now, it's interesting, it's interesting. Um, where the papacy of Gregory the Great assumes its greatest historical significance is not in Rome, though, or in Italy, but outside. Outside. Look at it this way. Gregory saw the potential right, for an unprecedented, unprecedented missionary effort to lands that lay completely outside the sphere of the Byzantine Empire. Right? What Gregory saw was this. I have a vision. Right, for raising the profile of the papacy as an institution. That vision directly conflicts with the Byzantine em emperor's demands and with the imperial vision of things. Right? If I directly confront the Byzantine emperors, it'll lead to extraordinary complications and problems for me. So what I'll do instead is just kind of keep them happy and sort of ignore them, right? let them think what they want to think, while at the same time expanding my influences Instead of my influence in areas where the Byzantine emperor can't interfere and where he won't even know what's going on, right? And that was the, in the fallow and fertile fields of Western Germanic Europe, right? Look at it this way. Gregory the Great saw, if I can somehow develop deep ties between the papacy as an institution, right, and the Germanic peoples of Gaul, of Spain, of Britain, and of course, Germany across the Rhine, right? then what I can do right, is provide a wholly different foundation for papal authority that doesn't depend on the Byzantine emperors. I can establish a wholly different orientation of papal policy, an orientation towards the West, where I can act in a way that is directive, that is authoritative, that is determinative, right? as opposed to simply being kept on a chain by some lay political leader. Right? And Gregory the Great does this very, very effectively. 595 is the crucial year in which Gregory the sen he, he sends the famous uh, mission of Augustine uh, to Canterbury in England. Right? And they come and, and, of course, they convert all of England. And it, it's interesting because uh, you know, the famous Enlightenment historian Edward Gibbon says, uh, you know, Caesar conquered England with many legions, but Gregory the Great conquered England with 40 monks. Right? It's fascinating. England being brought into the sphere of papal influence here is absolutely crucial. Gaul as well, Merovingian Gaul, was also brought into the papal sphere of influence here in this period. There were ties that were already existing there, but these ties were greatly expanded. Right. Spain as well. Keep in mind, Spain was ruled by whom in this period? 
Visigoths, yeah, we got Visigoths, that's right. Visigoths, right, the Visigothic kingdom of Spain was one that was recently converted to Catholicism. The Visigoths had, of course, like most Goths, they had been Arians, right? In Gregory's time, they were kind of new converts to papal Catholicism, right? And under the influence of some great uh, ecclesiastical figures, the Isidore of Seville, for example, who was another one of these guys, a thoroughly Roman holdover from late antiquity, Spain was also brought into the sphere of influence of the papacy. It wouldn't stay there for very long because the Muslims conquered it beginning in 711, and that kind of messed things up in Spain. But be that as it may, right, Gregory saw the potential that lay in papal ties in all of these regions, papal missions to these regions, right? There's, uh, the historian Walter Ullmann puts it very, very eloquently. Uh, he, he puts it very, very powerfully when he says it this way. With every justification, Gregory the Great can be called the father of Europe. Europe's parentage and physiognomy were Roman, and its cementing bond was the faith as expounded by the Roman Church. A merely physical or geographical entity, Europe, right? It was to become an ideological body which was sustained by its own inner forces. It's fascinating. Of which none was more resilient than the Christian faith in its Roman ecclesiastical shape. In prophetic vision, Gregory himself saw this European Union as the union of a Christian commonwealth. Societas Republice Christiane, a Christian commonwealth, the basic ingredients of which were of Roman and of ecclesiastical provenance, right? Gregory's robust vision of the, the role of the Pope in the entire Christian world is what gives rise to some, some of the Pope's important titles that he has today. Do you know, Gregory the Great was the first Pope to use this title, Servus Servorum Dei, the title Servant of the Servants of God. This was a title that owed its genesis to you know, Gregory's frustrations with the Byzantines. In fact, the Byzantine patriarch, the patriarch of Constantinople, tends to call himself something. He calls himself the ecumenical patriarch. Right? What does ecumenical mean? It means you're the patriarch of the whole world. Right? And calling yourself, calling, them calling themselves the ecumenical patriarch uh, was relatively new in this period, and it was something that left a bad taste in Gregory the Great's mouth, because he said to himself, no, I'm the ecumenical patriarch. I'm the Bishop of Rome. Right? Who's this guy? Now, of course, for the Byzantine patriarchs, it made sense to call themselves ecumenical. Right? Because various imperial offices in Constantinople were called the ecumenical this, the ecumenical that, the ecumenical you know, this, that, and the other thing. So to say the ecumenical patriarch, it just means, for them, it just meant the patriarch of Constantinople. Right? Any kind of universality there um, was simply the universality that you got from the reflected glow of the Byzantine emperor and his universal jurisdiction. Right? So it wasn't exactly a claim on the part of Byzantine patriarchs to universal jurisdiction. Nevertheless, it frustrates Gregory. Right? It very much frustrates Gregory. So Gregory decides, you know what, I'm going to come up with a better title. Better title than ecumenical patriarch. Right, this will knock your socks off. Servant of the servants of God. Right? Because he who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. <laughs> so. Oh, it was great. The, the patriarch of Constantinople at this time was named John the Faster, uh, so I guess he fasted a lot. Uh, but the, they had some really interesting correspondence back and forth where they're arguing about the different titles, and Gregory is <laughs> furious. You, know, you want to call yourself the ecumenical patriarch? I'll call myself the servant of the servants of God. Uh, we'll see which one Christ likes better at the end of the day. But <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, but what Gregory does is he lays the groundwork for the potent influence 
of the papacy in the West. Now, looking at his correspondence is interesting in other ways. There's a decided difference between the way that Gregory corresponds with Western kings and the way that he corresponds with the Byzantine emperor. Right? With Western kings, kings of the Visigoths, kings of the Franks, kings of different Germanic tribes, kings of, of the Angles and Saxons and whoever else, Gregory called them sons. Right? What he was doing, what Gregory was doing, he was taking the Roman imperial universality that was a part of his worldview and applying that to the way the Pope related to Western Europe. Right? In other words, I am the Pope, I am a figure, right, vis-a-vis you kings, right, that's sort of analogous to the way an emperor is towards his subjects. Right? The Pope, in, in Gregory's mind, rightfully right, and theoretically, is the ruler of all Europe. Right? So he addressed kings as sons. Right? He, he didn't try to necessarily take over their business or burden himself with all of their concerns. Right? But he definitely addressed them as sons and he as their father. Right? He never spoke that way to the Byzantine emperor because he knew there was no point. Right? Now what do we have here? Is, is this a two-faced policy or something like that? No, it's, it's Gregory's pragmatism. Right? Gregory never would have gotten anywhere if it weren't for his famous pragmatism. And this is a perfect example of this. He addressed the Eastern emperors the way that popes had always addressed the Eastern emperors, in tones of humility and respect. Um, but it doesn't mean you know, that he wasn't afraid to sort of break with Byzantine imperial policy. An example is the, the Lombard Peace of 596. Right? The, the Lombard Peace of 596 uh, is it's a very important example of the way in which Gregory could act independently. Right? What happens is this. The, the Lombards have a, this sort of love-hate relationship with the rest of the population of Italy. Right? There's a semi-stable uh, sort of situation where the Lombards rule over cer certain duchies and they have native Italian subjects. And by this point, a bunch of the Lombards have even converted and become Catholic. And even the king of the Lombards was Catholic at this time. But there was still a lot of violence. Uh, and native Italians didn't like the Lombards at all. And the Byzantines certainly didn't like the Lombards. The official Byzantine position was that the Lombards had no right to be there. Right? Gregory the Great, as Pope, in some sense, theoretically, he's supposed to be an exponent of Byzantine policy. He's supposed to be a sort of a viceroy for the emperor. Yet he was independent enough that in 596, Gregory paid 500 pounds of gold out of papal revenues. That's an enormous sum, right? 500 pounds of gold to the Lombards in exchange for peace, right? The official position was that there was no negotiation with Lombards. Gregory's position was that pragmatism rules the day at all times, especially in Italy, for which Gregory was personally responsible. Right? So what Gregory does, although it's interesting, if you look at the, the contemporary histories of the papacy, Gregory the Great, is, he's never really given the credit that he deserves by his own contemporaries. Right? Gregory the Great is mentioned in, in many of these early medieval texts uh, with no more or less approbation than any of his predecessors or his successors. Right? But he, he lays the real brass tacks foundation for what the medieval papacy would become. Right? And for that, he deserves credit. He had enormous vision. He was a tremendously forward-thinking man. Right? Now, the next kind of decisive event that's going to shape the medieval papacy and that's going to shape the, the pope's abilities to, uh, to function as directors of, of policy in Europe. And when I say directors of policy, what I don't mean is becoming obsessed with these 
you know, little local issues and things like that. What I mean is on the grand scale, on the grand scale, directing the Christian life of the European West, right? The next major event that would play a role in, in enhancing the Pope's ability to do that was the rise of the Carolingian Franks, right? So, really quickly, just to sort of flesh this out for you guys. Do you know that uh, since, oh, uh, I guess basically since the late 5th century, the Franks had been ruled by a dynasty that was called Merovingian, right? And the Merovingian kings of the Franks, um, obviously their great forefather was Clovis, who died around 511, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but the Merovingian kings, by the time the 7th and 8th centuries had rolled around, Merovingian kings weren't really having their best day anymore. Uh, do you guys know the, the Merovingian kings were famous because of what, what moniker did they earn in medieval sources? No, the, the, the Merovingian kings were called the kings, uh, les rois fanéants. They were called the, the do-nothing kings in old French. The, the do-nothing kings, right? Because what would a Merovingian king do? A Merovingian king would sit on a throne... And they never got haircuts either. Um, the, they were called Regis Criniti, the, the long-haired kings. The long hair was a sign of their, pa- their power and their divine authority. Merovingian king would sit on his throne, uh, and yeah, he would just sit there. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because their subordinates would do all the work for them. One subordinate in particular, right, one office became very important within the Frankish kingdoms, and that was the office of mayor of the palace. Right, what we call the, the Maior Domus in Latin. Right, the mayor of the palace. Uh, and whoever the mayor of the palace was was the real ruler of the kingdom, while the Merovingian king was the titular ruler of the kingdom, kind of sitting on his throne. Right? Now, why were they preserved? Why were they kept around for so long when they were just a figurehead? Well, it was because of the fact that Clovis had been anointed, right, in a sense, by the Holy Spirit himself. Right? The legend of after Clovis's conversion and his baptism right, was that he was, he was anointed by the, a pope at the time, Stephen II, right? and that there was no oil for his anointing, right? but a dove from heaven brought down an ampulla of oil, which was then used by the pope. Right? And the, the, uh, you guys are shaking your heads, you don't like this story. But <laughs> the idea is that Merovingian kings have divine legitimacy, right? And even if you don't believe the legend about the dove bringing the the oil down, the fact of the matter is that they had divine legitimacy because of their association with the papacy. And that's the material point. Merovingian kings were kept around because they were the ones who were endorsed by God. They were endorsed by God because the papacy said so. So, a crisis emerges in the 8th century. The crisis of Frankish Gaul in the 8th century is Muslim invasions from Spain. Right? Muslims from Spain came up with huge armies and threatened to conquer all of Gaul. They were held off, not by a Merovingian king, but by the mayor of the palace in 732, whose name was? Charles yes, Charles Martel. Right? And so, of course, th- this, this leads to a brewing Charles Martel. Let me write it on the board for those of you who didn't get it. The famous Charles Martel. This leads to a brewing quarterback controversy, right? where the, the Merovingians can't really do anything because they don't do anything, right? <laughs> and Charles Martel is saving Gaul and fighting off the Muslims, right? And so the, the papacy sees an opportunity here, right? Perhaps if the family of Charles Martel were elevated to the Frankish throne, replacing the Merovingians, 
not only would that provide an effective leader, right, the man who's actually effectively ruling the kingdom, not only would he be given the title that his activities merit and deserve, but also, but also it, would, it would provide an opportunity for the papacy in a very, very real sense to perhaps create a restored Western empire, right? A restored Western empire in which the papacy, right, exercised universal jurisdiction over that empire, over that Christian Western empire, universal authoritative guidance, right, assisted by and supported by a Frankish king who owed his title to the papacy, right? That's the opportunity that emerges. That's the opportunity that the popes seize. Right? And, of course, it culminates in the restoration of the Western Empire under Charlemagne in the year 800. Right? The alliance between the popes and the Carolingian kings is what will lead us directly, right, directly, albeit slowly, to the apex of papal power in the West some centuries later. And that will be the subject of our next lecture. Thank you. Question number one. I had thought that up until uh, the 1000s or so that the uh, Eastern Church supported the Pope as the primary bishop, but I'm getting the impression that that's not so. Am Good I question. Good question. Um, yeah, no, th th there's a complex answer to that. Um, Justinian, when he reconquered Italy, Justinian reconfirmed in Roman law the title of the Roman see as the head of all the churches. Head of all the churches. That, that was the, the phrase used by Justinian, by the Byzantines. It's in, it's in Roman law, as codified by Justinian. Um, so the, the theory that the Pope is the head of all the churches is something that was endorsed by the Byzantines and theoretically is still endorsed by the Eastern Orthodox churches. It's a question of what that means in practical terms. I, if you talk to Eastern Orthodox theologians today, they say, we have no problem with papal primacy. Right? We just would like it to look like and function like something different than what it functions like today. Right? In other words, for the, the, the concern that Eastern Orthodox bishops have had, uh, certainly for, for many centuries at this point, is that any kind of reunion with the West would be a takeover rather than a merger. And you know, that, that's not necessarily what they're interested in. Before the year 1000, things weren't always very simple. Right? It, it, it's, in other words, before the year 1000, you have countless schisms that take place over a variety of issues, usually involving the emperors trying to function as, as you know, in, in a Caesaro-Papist fashion, let's say. Uh, this, this occurs in the time, of, well, it, it occurs prior to Justinian's time in the 5th century, uh, you know, during the time of, of Zeno the Isaurian and the, the Acacian schism. It occurs after Justinian's time, so, well, it sort of occurs over the three chapters. The three chapters is a real messy issue. It occurs after Justinian's time over monothelitism. It occurs over iconoclasm in the 8th and the 9th centuries. Uh, so prior to the year 1000, uh, there are a, a wide variety of schisms that occur for a wide variety of reasons. One would hesitate to say that the Byzantine church and empire unequivocally supported the papacy. They certainly did support the papacy, but was their understanding of it, even before the year 1000, was their understanding of the papacy the same as the Pope's understanding of the papacy? Certainly not. It's safe to say that it's not. 
the Byzantine emperors had, of course, inherited this vision from the time of Constantine of the emperor as the head of all Christendom, protector of all Christians, and enforcer of doctrinal orthodoxy. Uh, and that vision of, of themselves was not exactly compatible with the way that the popes viewed themselves prior to, even prior to the year 1000. So it's, it's, it's a complex question and a complex answer, in a sense. It's, it's a yes and no answer, if that makes sense. You know, I, just to make one comment on that, that Dr. Marshner is going to be coming and speaking directly on the issue of 1054 and the issues that surrounded that. Mm -hmm. And um, these are the, I'm so happy that we got into this tonight because you can see the reasons why the, the, the broad perspective that what we're doing here at the Institute of Catholic Culture is that we're, able, we're equipped to be able to deal with these issues. And, um, and as far as the, the Eastern patriarchs and bishops and so forth, and we just were there at the food festival at Holy Transfiguration, uh, an Eastern Catholic church. And so these are the, the, the divisions in the church which we have to be prepared to understand, equipped to understand, and to also realize that because two brothers got in a fight and are still in some ways in a discussion and in an argument, doesn't make them not brothers. They're still brothers. And so it's our job here at the Institute of Catholic Culture to be able to speak with our brother, to be able to talk with him, to be able to restore that family connection so that the family is restored. Okay, I was just reading this morning the um, sermon, if you will, of Pope Benedict on the occasion of his election, okay, where he said, sadly, the net which Christ has thrown out into the deep to scoop up the fish of this world has been torn. And so the, the fabric has been torn because the church in some way has been broken by this great schism. And it's, it's a, the greatest tragedy in the history of the church. And that's why it stands at the forefront of what we're doing right now with the Institute of Catholic Culture. So, okay, next question. Dear Dr. McGuire, you speak enthusiastically, or maybe pseudo-enthusiastically, about this power zenith or power apex that you're talking about in the medieval papacy, which I would say is the Dark Age papacy. But anyway, why wouldn't it be more apropos to call it the nadir? And I don't mean Ralph Nader, I mean the nadir of the papacy. Why would it not be more appropriate to call it the nadir of the papacy? Well, it all depends what kind of value system you're using to, to look at this. A spiritual value system. Well, I guess I'm, I'm having trouble ascertaining the perspective that you're coming from because what the medieval popes would say is, is this, right? Um, the, that apex of papal, in other words, the, the more authority the pope has, the, the more ability the pope has to direct the affairs of Christian Europe, right, the more spiritually healthy Christian Europe is going to be, right? Because what were the popes concerned about in the Middle Ages? Primarily, what was their principal preoccupation? Rooting out abuse, right? Reforming the clergy, Eliminating abuses like simony, right? eliminating abuses like clerical concubinage, eliminating abuses like um, uh, 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 the tremendous violence that racked Western Europe in the early Middle Ages. These were the things that the popes were trying to root out to establish a, a peaceful and serene European civilization that resembled the Roman Empire more closely. Remember, the, the popes are hearkening back to a Roman imperial past that they see themselves as the custodians of. Right? And they're trying to reestablish a Europe that is peaceful, a Europe that is Christian, a Europe in which you don't have land-hungry hung Frankish barons rapaciously uh, fighting each other, slaughtering towns, you know, burning peasants in a church on a Sunday, 
uh, a society in which you don't have uh, you know, clerics offering spiritual goods for money, a society in which you don't have clerical concubinage. These are the things that the popes are, are principally concerned about. It's with the spiritual purity and doctrinal orthodoxy of the Christian West. This is what they're going to try to wield their power to protect. Uh, and this is what you'll see in, in the reign of all the great medieval popes, in the reign of a, a Gregory VII, in the reign of an Innocent III. Right? That's what they're looking to do. They're looking to purify the, the Western world of its pagan, pre-Christian, barbarian vestiges, right, which included mindless violence and all sorts of abuse. Right? And so the, the papacy as an institution, is, it's definitely a force for civilization. Even agnostic and atheistic historians recognize that, that the, the papacy is the one institution that was equipped to preserve and defend civilized life. So that's what I would say. Yes, sir, I uh, enjoyed what you had to say, but I, I was going to ask you, uh, could you place into context uh, the state of Sephardim during the time of Gregory the Great? Sorry, the state of what? Uh, Sephardic Jews. Oh, Sephardic Jews, okay, Sephardim. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I actually don't know much about the state of the Sephardim in the time of, of Gregory the Great. That's a good question. Uh, the thing about the, the Sephardim is that there, there certainly are a lot of them, in Italy, in the time of Gregory the Great. There are a lot of them in Corsica and Sardinia. There are a lot of them in Spain, under the Visigoths, and in uh, North Africa as well. Uh, so all over the Western Mediterranean there, as well as the Eastern Mediterranean, there were colonies and communities of Sephardic Jews. Um, for the most part, and, and maybe this provides some context, for the most part, the approach to Jewish populations in Christian society in the Middle Ages was based on St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine's position was that it was a sin to persecute Jewish communities and it should never be done uh, because, well, for a variety of theological reasons that St. Augustine lays out. Not all of them would be very palatable to, to modern Jews. He says that uh, it, it's, it's good to not persecute Jews because the Jews remind us of Christ uh, in their diaspora. They remind us of the fact that they were punished for, for persecuting Christ. And so it's, it's things that wouldn't necessarily sound very ecumenical today all the time. But nevertheless, it, it was a, a theological rationale for tolerance. It was a theological rationale for uh, a peaceful and tolerant approach towards Jewish communities. Whenever there's anti-Jewish violence in the Middle Ages, it's remarkable because it's rare. Right? Anti-Jewish violence in the Middle Ages occurs, and it's remarkable for its rarity and for the fact that it's always condemned by the ecclesiastical hierarchy and by the, the royalty of Europe, especially later in the Middle Ages. Um, Jews played a very important role in the economies of certain European kingdoms, especially later in the Middle Ages. Certainly in the case of France, this was true. It was also true in the Rhineland. And so when there were outbreaks of, of mob violence directed against Jewish communities, I, I would stress that they were rare. They usually had a specific context, right? It was, it was not driven by generalized anti-Semitism. When there was outbreaks of violence against Jews, it had to do with local issues, local conflicts, local resentments. Right. And this, this is explored uh, very fascinatingly by the great Jewish historian David Nirenberg, uh, who's at Princeton now. Uh, he has a, a book about this called Communities of Violence, is, is the title. Uh, and so when you have anti-Jewish violence, it's rare. It's driven by, local, uh, by the local situation, effectively, and not by some kind of macro prejudice or, or something like that. Uh, d does that provide some context? Thank you, Brandon.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.